actually beginning at verse 46. And let me remind you that this passage that we've looked at several times occurs on the first resurrection day. It occurs uh, on the day of Christ's resurrection. Uh, it's one of a couple of two or three actually different interactions that Jesus has with various of his disciples. He has walked with the disciples on the road to Emmaus. He has eaten dinner with those disciples in Emmaus. Then those two disciples uh, turned and hightailed it back to Jerusalem to find the 11 so that they could tell the 11 that everything that Mary and, and everybody else was saying really was true. And then Jesus, after those two disciples have found the 11 and are locked into the room with them, Jesus appears among them, and that's where we are in this passage. Jesus, on the first resurrection day, with his disciples, giving them proof, giving them evidence that he is alive. And then listen to what he says. Verse 45, Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Jesus is saying that is in the Old Testament. That's in the Old Testament. That the gospel would be heralded to all the nations of the world. You see, the whole thing is in the Old Testament. It's all there. And Jesus is opening their minds so that they can understand that and see it. And then verse 48. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you are here among us, more real than the air we breathe, the chairs upon which we sit. You are here as the ruling and reigning king. And this is the place of your rule and reign. And from this place, that rule and reign gets pushed out into the whole of the earth, and we praise you for that. And now we ask you that by your Spirit you'd help us to understand it, that it really is true and that you've gathered us up into it and that we're part of it. Lord, thrill our hearts and souls with this. We pray, grant your Spirit as we come to your Word. Again, we ask in your name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, this is a Memorial Day weekend. Tomorrow is Memorial Day. And if it doesn't rain, there'll be picnics and parties outside all over Indian River County. Uh, but there will be picnics and parties and celebrations and parades and everything else all over this country because tomorrow is a civic holiday. It's a day in which we as a nation are called upon to remember some things. That's why it's called Memorial Day. We're called upon to remember we're called upon to remember people, people who gave their lives. We're called upon to remember victories that preserved liberties and freedoms. It's a civic holiday. It's a good thing to do. It's a holiday for the nation. It's for the entire populace. 
regardless of creed, regardless of ethnic origin, regardless of belief, regardless of theological conviction. Everybody's invited to participate in the holiday. And every year it comes around. And it comes around every year because we're forgetful. We need to remember. It has a design. It has purposes. And at the center of all of them is this purpose of helping us to remember. Again, that's why we call it Memorial Day. It's a Remembrance Day. And people need Remembrance Days because they're forgetful. And having them helps remembering. Are you with me so far? That's why I love the church year. That's why I love the liturgical year. That's why I love the liturgical calendar. Because I forget. And I need to remember. And what I need to remember is that a greater battle was fought and a greater victory was won. And that greater battle and that greater victory, which culminates in one sense at the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ, is something that Christians from every race and nation and tribe and tongue give thanks for every single week as they gather together on the Lord's Day to celebrate the Lord's victory, to celebrate the Lord's battle. You know what this last Thursday was? I love this. Forgive me. I'm not going to ask for forgiveness. You know what last Thursday was? If you know what last Thursday was, we don't usually do this because we don't do these kinds of things in Presbyterian churches, but if you know what this last Thursday was, and don't be embarrassed if you didn't know because I'm about to tell you, I'm about to teach you, I'm about to inform you. If you know what this last Thursday was, if you do, raise your hand. Hallelujah. What was it? It was the Feast of Christ the King. It was Ascension Day. And it's a day to remember. You know, Old Testament Israel was given a sabbatical pattern, a weekly pattern by which to remember God's creative activity and the direction in which all of history was going. That all of history was going in the direction of the Sabbath rest, the eternal rest, the day of shalom, when the shalom of God encompasses the whole of the creation and did for a time encompass the whole of the creation. And we have that sabbatical pattern as well. We gather every Lord's Day. We don't gather on the seventh day of the week. We gather on the first day of the week. People who have really thought about these things a lot, read a lot about these things, studied these things, say, you know, the real pattern for us is that from Monday through Wednesday, we look back to the Sabbath celebration that we just enjoyed, and then beginning on Wednesday, we look to the Sabbath celebration that's ahead of us. Again, a recapitulation of the whole of what God has done in creation and the direction in which all of creation is headed and who is our Sabbath rest and why do we do it on the first day of the week? Jesus is our Sabbath rest. Jesus has entered into that Sabbath rest. Jesus, God incarnate, the one who spun the universe into existence, who upholds it by the word of his power, who came to redeem us from the curse and deliver the whole of the creation from its bondage, Jesus has entered into the Sabbath rest and we come together every Sunday morning to celebrate that. But Israel didn't just have a weekly pattern of remembrance. They had an annual pattern of remembrance. 
Remember, they had the Passover and they had first fruits and then they had the final in gathering, the final harvest. And those agricultural events were attached to redemptive events. God delivering his people, God bringing his people to the mountain and giving them his law and marrying them and making them a bride and pointing them in the direction of their entrance into the promised land. Every year it came round again and again. And where is the fulfillment of Passover first fruits? And the ultimate and last final ingathering, it's Jesus. And so I think we take seriously, we take seriously the counsel, the wisdom of the scriptures, and we do well to observe the great redemptive work that God has done in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we have Advent, which leads to Christmas, which leads to Epiphany, the presentation of Jesus as the Savior of the world, which then leads through this period of time leading up to Lent, Ash Wednesday. Don't worry, we're not going to burn palm branches and put crosses on your heads. Though I might like to. (laughs) Which leads us then to the Passion Week to Palm Sunday and Monday, Thursday and Good Friday and Resurrection Day. And what follows 40 days later? The Feast of Christ the King who ascended into the presence of His Father, followed by Pentecost where He with His Father fulfilled the promise that they made, pouring out the Spirit upon the church as Jesus says in verse 53 to clo- 52, to clothe them with power from on high. I'm sorry, verse 49. So that the church might be empowered to herald and to live the gospel of the kingdom out into the midst of the world. You see, to do that, we're just taking our cue from Old Testament Israel, who saw a weekly pattern and who saw an annual pattern of remembrance. And that's what we're doing every Sunday And that's what we do as we remember. We remember the great redemptive acts that God has accomplished in the Lord Jesus Christ. I've said this for probably close to 20 years. I'll have some sense that my work on earth is done when people pay more attention to Epiphany than they do Super Bowl Sunday. And honestly... I don't disparage Memorial Day. I don't minimize the propriety of celebrating and giving thanks for it and remembering. But honestly, I'll know my job on earth is done when Ascension Day and Pentecost loom more largely in the minds of the people of God than important civic holidays. Now, I don't mean to make anybody mad in saying this. I'm just telling you, to me, as a pastor charged with with nurturing and caring for God's flock, that's discipleship to me. When a congregation of God's people is enraptured, have their hearts captured by the significance and the implications of the great historical acts of God, in Christ Jesus. Remember that history is the stage upon which the drama of God's purposes in creation and redemption are played out. History is His story. 
And He's gathered us up into it as His people. And so this Sunday, after the Ascension Day, after the Feast of Christ the King, let's, let's make some observations about this. Let's, let's talk about this a little bit. Let's look at Luke chapter 24 and Acts the first chapter and make some observations. Let's observe in the first place that the ascension was every bit as factual, real, physical, material, bodily, as was the resurrection of Christ. Maybe this is a dead horse that you think I've been beating to death after it's already dead. But I do want to remind you, and I do it, I do it because out in the wider culture and tragically in churches... The literal, physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, the kind of thing that you could have taken a picture of if you had been there, with a real, as John Opdyke puts it, a true rock of materiality was moved. Not something paper mache, but something exactly like that. But a real rock of real substance was moved out of the way And the God-man Jesus Christ in a glorified, real, physical, material body came forth from the tomb. And the ascension is presented to us in exactly the same way. It is presented without fanfare. It's presented without any kinds of bells, whistles, or any sort of imagination kinds of things. It's presented for what it was. The Lord Jesus Christ, 40 days after his resurrection, bodily, materially, physically, still fully God, still fully man, was taken up in the sight of the disciples. If you had been there, you could have embraced him before he left. You could have watched him go as he disappeared from sight. Great comfort. One of the great comforts of the scriptures, Acts chapter 1, is that he's going to come back in exactly the same way he left. The same Jesus who departed in this way will return in like manner. That's Acts chapter 1. Still fully God, still fully man, Jesus removed, if we can put it that way, from the earthly realm and entered the heavenly realm. Now let me encourage you, and I don't have time to elaborate this, but let me encourage you that you not think about the difference between these two realms in spatial or geographic terms or with those kinds of images. What is being contrasted here is the realm of the unseen and the realm of the seen. And Jesus' ascension wasn't so much about him going up there as it was about him entering a different kind of space. I alluded to this in my prayer. A space that we don't see, but which is in fact woven throughout the fabric of the space that we do see. When Paul in Philippians chapter 4, verse 5, encourages the Philippians, he encourages them with these words, the Lord is at hand. The Lord is near. The Lord is at hand. And again, Paul's not thinking chronologically. He's not thinking in terms of spatial dimension and distances. 
He's thinking about these two different realms, the realm of the seen and the realm of the unseen. And when he says the Lord is near, he is not imagining that Jesus is off in some distant place and it takes him time to cover that space to get back here. Nor does he, when he speaks these words, nor is he confused about the exact nature of human history. Paul understands that human history is going to extend across generations and centuries and perhaps even millennia. So he's not confused when he says the Lord is near, mistaken in concluding that Jesus is going to show up and appear at any moment. He doesn't need to show up and appear at any moment. Why? Because he is here. He is here. And when Paul uses this language, the Lord is at hand or the Lord is near, he is thinking about these two dimensions, if you will, these two realities, the unseen realm and the seen realm, and he is saying Jesus is at hand. He is here, near, proximate. He is for us as the Israel of God who find themselves in the midst of the wilderness where the daytime can become excruciatingly hot and the nighttime can become bitter cold and where the provision for tomorrow is not yet seen and where there are snakes and scorpions in the desert, Jesus is near in the way that God was near to Israel in a pillar of fire at night and in a cloud by day, keeping them warm and safe at night, covering them from the heat and protecting them in the day. He is near, and because he is near, those of you who have read Ed Welch's book or who are reading it, you'll catch the language. Because he is near, he hears, and because he hears, he provides, and because he loves his people, he delivers. He is near, he hears. He provides and he delivers. That's the sense in which Jesus is near. His transition, if you will, again, wasn't so much up there as it was across what Sinclair Ferguson calls the sometimes very thin veil that separates the seen from the unseen. I love that. Ferguson says, there are times when the veil between the seen and the unseen grows thin. And it's interesting, and again, I'm elaborating this more than I had originally intended, it's interesting that when the New Testament talks about the return of Jesus, the parousia of Jesus, it speaks of the return of Jesus as the appearing of Jesus. And what happens when he appears is that the veil comes down and what was separated by sin and the fall, the separation of the heavenly realm, the realm of God, from the earthly realm, the realm of human beings, those realms are brought back together and married in one reality and the veil that separates them is no longer there. And so Jesus... The God-man raised from the dead is here in this dimension of reality that we do not see but which is really real. 
every bit as real as the unseen. That's why in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul refers to people walking into a service of worship and hearing things they don't understand, and they fall down on their faces and worship God and say, truly, God is in the midst of you. How I pray for that. How I wish and long and hope for that reality being more and more characteristic rather than entertainment and a dog and pony show and a whole lot of things please forgive me, that the reality of the presence of Christ would be more and more seen and felt and known so that we would be on our faces before the glorious King. It's because these two realities, these two realms are so close together. Now, that's where Jesus is as the risen God-man. What is this being taken up mean? Well, the ascension piece of this, Jesus ascending or going into this other realm, but, but really with this language of ascension means several things. And here are four of them. Here's the first of the four. First, the ascension means that Christ the King is reigning. He is reigning. He is reigning. The ascension is a cosmic enthronement ceremony. The ascension, this, this that happens at the end of Luke 24 and that happens in the first verses of Luke's second book, Acts in chapter 1, this is an enthronement ceremony where Christ the suffering servant who suffered and died, who was entombed, but then who was raised, is now ensconced, is now lifted up and raised and enthroned at the right hand of the Father. It's all throughout the New Testament. I'll give you just three passages and then an allusion to a fourth to a to a book, actually. Let me give you just three passages. Ephesians 4 8. Paul quotes Psalm 68 18. When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives captive, and he gave gifts to men. When he ascended on high, he led host a captivity of captives, and he gave gifts to men. The passage describes, uses language of, and describes a mighty warrior who's returned from battle. It's the imagery of battle. And it's the imagery of a returning, conquering king. They used to do this back in those days. The returning general would go into his capital city, and he would go into his capital city amidst much celebration, and the people would come out to meet him. And as the people would come out to meet him, they would see in his train those whom he had vanquished. They brought the captives back with them. And Paul sees the ascension in that kind of imagery. But here are two very different aspects to this, two things in which the ascension of Christ as a warrior king who is returning to be seated upon his throne is very different from earthly generals, earthly warriors. First place, he's not merely a general. He is a general king. Typically, kings would send their generals out to do the dirty work for them. But Jesus doesn't send somebody else out to do the dirty work for him. He is the king who comes to do battle with his own enemies. And when he returns, he returns as a victorious general king to take 
his place, to take his position of authority, to take his seat, and then to govern his realm. All of it. All of it. And here's the second great difference between earthly kings and this returning victorious king. Earthly, worldly conquering generals lead free people into captivity. But this conquering general leads captive people into freedom. Earthly conquering generals fight their fights to imprison people. This conquering king fought his fight to lead a captive people into freedom. It is for for freedom that Christ has set you free. Galatians 5.1. So that's Ephesians 4.8. You see, the ascension is what is in view. Hebrews 4, verses 14 to 16. A passage people love, rightly. Tells us that Christ has passed through the heavens and that because He has passed through the heavens and because He has been tempted in every way as we are, And because of that, he is able to sympathize with us in our every weakness. Because of all of that, we may draw near to him. And when we draw near to him, to what do we draw near? We hear this language. We toss it around. To what do we draw near? The throne of grace. We draw near to a throne. We draw near to a high priestly king who is seated upon that throne. And he isn't merely able to hear us and sympathize with us because he is the king. He's able to do something for us. And so we draw near to him, assured that he has and that he will give us the help that we need. That's Hebrews 4. 1 Corinthians 15, 25. Paul says he must reign until every enemy is put under his feet, every enemy subdued, every enemy vanquished, every enemy conquered. Paul is waiting for Christ not to begin his reign, but he's waiting for the day when that reign is extended over every enemy, every opponent, and everything that now resists Christ is subdued, vanquished, and conquered. He's affirming that he does reign and he's going to keep reigning. And he's going to keep reigning until the full realization of that reign is felt throughout the whole cosmos. He must reign until he has put every enemy under his feet. Or think again of the revelation. Now, you know... I trust by now that I take a different tack to the whole book of Revelation than what is the prevailing view out there in the wider culture. And I want to tell you I do so because of the Bible. I do so because of the Bible. Remember, there are two realms that are being described here, the realms we've already referred to, the heavenly or the unseen and the earthly and seen. 
And what is described in Revelation is not what will begin to happen at some far distant place, at some place located far removed from John and the people he's writing to, the people he is a pastor to, the people he cares for. He's not writing about something that's going to happen down the hallway of history at some future place. He is writing about things that are happening right now. And he describes them as they unfold on earth. But the more important thing is he is describing what is presently happening in the unseen realm. And what is happening in the unseen realm right now and to which we add our voices week by week by week, what is happening in the unseen realm is Worship of the Lamb at the right hand of the Father who is seated upon the throne. That's what's happening in the Revelation. That's the dominant theme of Revelation. It's worship. It's worship of the Lamb who was slain, who was raised, who is ascended, who is at the right hand of the Father with power and authority to unfold the scrolls after having opened the scrolls. He has power and authority to tell us what's going to happen down the corridor of history because he's the ruling and reigning king. And we're not waiting for his reign to begin. He's ruling. He's reigning. Counted him again yesterday. 38 times, at least 38 times, in the 22 chapters of the Revelation, the phrase, the throne, is mentioned. 38 times. And the throne is occupied, folks. And it's occupied by the king of glory. And the one standing at his right hand in a position of power and authority, having been, given, having been given that power and that authority and that dominion, is the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And the father and the son together are worshipped and praised and glorified right now. It's ruling and reigning and governing their realm. That's why the sermon title is what it is. You looking for the reign of Christ? You looking for the rule of Christ? There's no need to wait for it. It's here. It's here. Fully realized? Pressed out into every nook and cranny and corner of the universe? Into every believing heart? Nope. But the rest of the whole of human history is the Lord and King pressing his rule and reign out into every nook and cranny of the whole of the universe so that his glory might be fully put on display in every nook and cranny of the universe. As Abraham Kuyper said over 100 years ago, founder, president of the Free University of Amsterdam, quoted often, wonderfully so, should be quoted more, there is not one square inch of the whole cosmos about which Jesus Christ does not say, this is mine, this belongs to me. And what he's doing right now is pressing his rule and reign out into every nook and cranny. And he is pressing his rule and reign into the hearts of those people whom the Father gave him before the foundation of the world so that in their hearts, more and more fully every single day, his rule and reign in the living of their lives might be seen and known. The king is ruling and reigning. His reign is here. It's woven into the fabric of the New Testament. It is presupposed by the New Testament. It is at the center of the book of the Revelation. And so Christ, who is the greater Joseph, who is the greater Daniel, who is the greater David, 
is that the one at the right hand of ultimate power and authority who has that power and authority himself because it's been given to him by his father and he's using it right now. Now, how far does that rule extend? This is the second thing very quickly. How far does that rule and reign extend? It extends to everything. My dear friends, we do not live in a dualistic universe where there's a good power and a bad power, and the good power and the bad power have equal power. And you're some kind of battleground caught between the two. And the outcome is uncertain. Again, I'm going to pick on what's out there in popular evangelicalism, and as you read this stuff and you listen to this stuff very often, you get that impression. Two powers, equal powers, outcome is uncertain. You've got to know certain shibboleths, that is, certain catchphrases. You've got to know certain mantras in order to get the good power to work in your behalf to overcome the bad power. My friends, the bad power is subject to the rule and reign of the risen and reigning Christ. And there aren't two powers out there equal in power. Christ is the one with ultimate power and authority. Ephesians 1.21, God raised Jesus up and seated him preeminently, supremely, far above all rule and all authority and all power and all dominion, above every name that is named, and he has made him head over almost everything for the church. He has made him head over all things, over everything. You've got to have a real big net to take in all things. All things means all things. And the text says that he is elevated supremely, preeminently, immeasurably above all things. Folks, this last Friday night at our home, I I hope and pray and trust that more will come. These young couples, these young singles will come to our place as we study to the, the book of Ephesians. We're using this book called Let's Study Ephesians by Sinclair Ferguson. This is what... Ferguson writes, the work of Christ as sacrificing priest is ended, as sacrificing priest is ended. Now has begun the epoch in which his victory over death, sin, and Satan is being worked out. He reigns. Indeed, he towers over all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. There is no rule greater than Christ's. There is no authority that can thwart his purposes. There is no power that can withstand his. There is no dominion that can prevent his advance. That is true in the present. Thanks be to God. If you're a Christian this morning, I hope your heart is speaking to you and saying, I'm glad I'm on the right side. Here's the third thing. This rule and reign of Christ, and this is an extension of the second thing, this rule and reign of Christ means that your enemies and mine have been vanquished and are being vanquished. Have been and are being vanquished. Before we read Psalm 110, I alluded to this, mentioned this, that over 30 times in the New Testament, more times than any other Old Testament passage, Psalm 110 verse 1, is either cited or alluded to, referred to. Over 30 times. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. It is quoted in Acts 2.34, 
It is alluded to in 1 Corinthians 15, the passage that I mentioned, Ephesians 1.21 clearly, clearly alludes to the fact that the Father has fulfilled his purpose for the Son. He has elevated the Son to the place of preeminent glory where he rules and reigns, and the Son is now working out his purpose, subduing his enemies, meaning death, sin, and Satan. I love this, John chapter 12, verse 31. Jesus says to his disciples right before he goes to the cross, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Now that's Jesus saying that in his cross work, his entombment, his resurrection, that whole complex of things by which he gains victory over sin and death and the devil, the ruler of this world is cast out. So you ask the question, when will the great accuser, when will the great deceiver, when will the great Satan be bound and chained? Done. Done. Ray, let's go have lunch. Don't shake your head at me. (laughs) Done. Jesus said it. Now is the ruler of this world cast out. Paul writes to the Colossians in the cross. He disarmed rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing triumphing over them in the cross. What does it mean to disarm a ruler and authority? It means you take their weapons away from them so that they are powerless before the one who disarms them. Now these... Paul's words, the words of Scripture, the words of Jesus. We're not waiting for the arrival of the king. We're not waiting for the arrival of the kingdom. We're not waiting for the rule and reign of the king. They are here. Are they fully realized? No, they're not. That's why we have to be so careful. That's why we understand that in some sense the devil is a lion who prowls around seeking those whom he may devour. Understand this can get confusing. But let's interpret what is less clear in light of what is more clear. That's a basic principle of biblical hermeneutics. And Jesus says, the ruler of this world is cast out. Paul says that he has been disarmed. Maybe he's running around without guns and tanks, trying to terrify and frighten and everything else. But before the power of Jesus, he is powerless. Powerless. And we're waiting Not for that victory to come, but for the full expression of that victory to be realized in every nook and cranny and corner of the universe and in every human heart where the residue of rebellion still remains. People wonder, how do we think about this? How do we think about this stuff? And very often, the Normandy invasion is used to illustrate what we're talking about. The success of the Normandy invasion meant that the Axis powers were broken. It took some time for the final realization of that victory to come, but victory was certain. Victory was certain. So, when you pray, 
Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. All you're doing is lining up your prayers with what is happening right now. You're not asking for something that hasn't already started. You're lining up your prayers with what is going on. What you are praying for is that God will more and more and more and more bring the reality of his rule and reign into the world, in the totality of the world. And fourth, the reign of Christ makes the mission of the church clear. And we're going to talk about this more next week. As we celebrate Pentecost, the outpouring of the Spirit upon the church, the clothing of the church with power so that the church might fulfill its mission until Christ appears to bring to completion what he started. And the mission of the church is that we shall be witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, even to the uttermost parts of the world. Matthew 28, 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go and make disciples of all nations. I am with you to the end of the age. Jesus tells his disciples, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. The mission of the church is to live under the gracious, loving rule of the risen and reigning king so that by his power they may herald and live the realities of the kingdom as he pushes his rule and reign wider and wider and deeper and deeper until he appears to complete what is underway. Thanks be to God. All of that is why I think we need when we get into our building and we trust we will by next Ascension Day, why we need to have an Ascension Day service so that we can gather coming apart from the world but joining with the nation that God is creating from out of the nations of the world to celebrate the victorious king and his rule and reign. King of glory is seated upon his throne ruling, governing, ordering all things for his glory and for your good. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you encourage the hearts of your people? Would you encourage my heart with these things? Would you cause us to know that because of this resurrection and this ascension, our labor in the Lord is not in vain, but it is precisely the labor in the midst of the world in whatever form it takes in each of our individual lives, our labor in the Lord is the labor, which is the work of seeing the kingdom heralded and lived in the midst of the nations until you appear to finish what you've started. We long for that day. We pray you would bring it. And we pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Okay, I know it's late. Always is. I'd like you to sing number 296. I'd like you to sing all of it. It tells a story. And I hate for any of the chapters of the story to be left out. So let's stand together and sing. All hail the power of Jesus' name.